Hi, I'm Graham, and welcome back to Brits on Flicks, your movie podcast. Uh, with me is Brian Lomax from Brian Lomax Movie Talk. And the movie we're going to be talking about this episode is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. So, Brian, when did uh, you first discover this movie? Well, I actually saw Terminator, the first film, probably at two early in age. Um, <laughs> I, I saw it when I was about eight years old, maybe nine, but I, I think it was about eight. Um, my brother, my oldest brother, was mad on it, absolutely loved it. So he kind of, in a way, forced us to watch it. And when I saw it, I just loved it. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Um, and I must have watched the first Terminator film a hundred times. So the prospect of a sequel, this Terminator 2 Judgment Day, was it was announced and obviously like nearly a decade after the after the original. Um and so yeah, well it was I think it was about was it seven years or something. But anyway, it was it was quite a while to have passed back then for, for a sequel to come along. And yeah, uh, I was too young to see it. So I couldn't see it. And my big brother, who'd gotten me into this first film to begin with was able to go because he was old enough so he's telling me about this film and like all I'm hearing is just amazing things about this film because everyone's going to go and see it uh, and I can watch it so I had to wait till it came out on video and um, when it came out on video I watched it as a fan already of the franchise and I just loved it absolutely loved it it, it lived up to the hype and it be, you know it became a classic so uh, yeah that's that's pretty much my experience. I just remember watching this on video constantly as a teenager uh, with my brothers. As for the first Terminator, I, I had seen it a couple of times, but I was never really a fan of it. I don't think I really understood it or, or I got to know it as well as some other people did. And there was always something that just I just couldn't connect 100% with it. But when Terminator 2 came out in the cinemas, I was starting to go a lot more to the cinemas and see a lot of things. And I remember seeing the teaser trailer for it, which was a, a construction line of Arnold Schwarzenegger's getting put together. That was a sort of teaser trailer for T2. And I just remember going like, I really want to see that. That looks good. But I was too young at the time to see it. So I remember getting myself all ready to go to the cinema, you know, trying on that deep voice that I could uh, muster as best I could and going in and asking for one ticket to Terminator 2 and just hoping that I was going to get in. And I remember the person who served to look at me and went, there is no way you're 15. I just went, <laughs> yep, yep, I, I am. Someone else came from through from the back and just went, no chance. And, and I was like, no, no, really, I am 15 years old. And I just stood there and I argued for five minutes that they eventually just went, fine, just go. And they let me in to see it. <laughs> And I was blown away by the movie. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, special effects were unlike anything I'd ever seen. It just was so different for the time. And I remember watching it constantly in the, the early 90s on video, much like yourself. And then I kind of, I think I sort of took it for granted because it became so entrenched in the zeitgeist. It was everywhere. There was sort of like nods to it in other movies and things like that and it was always referenced as one of the best action movies that I think I, I really did take it for granted and I, I stopped watching it so when I rewatched it this time it had roughly been somewhere around the region of about 20 years since I had last watched it and well we'll get to the review soon enough but you know it was it was far too long a time and I'd forgotten lots of aspects about it that I'm, I'm looking forward to discuss. Um, do you have a, a synopsis for us? I do. I will uh, I'll get into that now. So Terminator 2 Judgment Day. 
Nearly ten years have passed since the events of the first Terminator film. Sarah Connor has been placed inside a mental institution under the watchful eye of psychiatrist Dr. Silberman, also returning from the first film. After she tried to blow up a factory belonging to Cyberdyne Systems, the corporation that took the remains of the first Terminator that was sent back to 1984. Miles Bennett Dyson is the man working for Cyberdyne, who will eventually unlock the secrets of the computer chip that was found inside this machine. His discoveries will eventually lead to the creation of Skynet, the advanced computer system that will become self-aware in the year 1997 and launch an all-out nuclear war upon mankind. Meanwhile, John Connor, the young man who will eventually go on to successfully lead the war against the machines, is spending his days committing criminal acts, using the skills he learnt from the vigorous training his mother put him through, all the while trying to avoid his foster parents. Unbeknownst to John, another Terminator, the T-1000, has been sent back in time to kill him. The Resistance are also able to send a Terminator back through time, the familiar T-800 model. This time, however, Schwarzenegger's unstoppable killing machine has arrived as John's protector. With the T-1000 relentlessly pursuing them, John, Sarah and the T-800 must take the fight directly to Cyberdyne in one last-ditch effort to stop Skynet before it can be created. Well done. I think one of the first things uh, I want to talk about is that opening scene. It starts off with the, the, city, the city play park, and that's uh, all the way through the movie. It's designed to sort of look uh, life, and then it shows you the destruction afterwards, and then it moves pretty swiftly into the future, where you've got the all-out war between the robots and the resistance. And this is like this scene just grabs you straight away, because I hadn't seen anything like this before, seeing the, the, the T-800s without the skin walking about, with the, the guns in, in both arms, just laying waste, it, it's fantastic and, and one of the things that really struck me was, is, is even with the sequels, where you've got Salvation or Genesis, where they try to do things in the future, they're nowhere near as good as what James Cameron got in this first one, this very small scene and depiction of the future was amazing, you know, the, the Terminator, the way it enters the scene, it just steps on a skull, crushes it, and the camera pans up to show you this silver chrome monster in this LA wasteland. It was an, an amazing opening scene. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are there are a couple of scenes like that in the first one, in the first film, uh, but definitely improved here just, just because of the budget. I mean, you can't forget that the first Terminator film is actually a B-movie. It, it was a very low-budgeted film. I mean, I think it was something like 20 million, which like, even back then was low. Uh, but the budget on this film, obviously, was the highest budget of any film of that time. Um, it was uh, James Cameron has this habit of, whenever he brings a film out, he, he breaks new records for budget, but he also happens to break new records for box office, which is lucky for him because it means he gets that record-breaking budget again on his next film. Um, but it really shows. He, he uses sp- br- groundbreaking special effects um, in all of, his, all of his films, but here, likewise, um, seeing, as you say, those T-800s on the battlefield, we... We get quite a bit of the T-800 in in the first film, but it's very kind of stilted. It feels very stop-motion at at times. 
but this one it's clearly physical effects that are being used and the the puppetry so to speak stan winston's special effects for him have been vastly improved so we do get this sense that that these things are alive and and that's kind of the beauty of of the world that's created here in this film you you feel pulled into this world pulled into this future this possible future um, and it's a scary future uh, just the idea of all these human bones and skulls that are just laid waste on the battlefield. I mean, we open up, the, like the first shot we get of one of these T-800s, it crushes this human skull under its foot, and you feel the power of it, especially with the uh, Dolby surround sound. Um, yeah, just really powerful imagery at the start, and especially when it's, as you say, juxtaposed with this kind of innocence of humanity on the on the playground at the beginning. Uh, yeah, it's it's... It's dangerous and it's scary, uh, and that's that's something about this film actually is that it can be labelled as a sci-fi film, um, it can be labelled an action film, but it can also be labelled a horror film, and I didn't realise that actually until uh, last last night's viewing because I, I viewed this last night in, pre- in preparation for this podcast, and there's a lot of horror in this film. <clears throat> Are you talking along the lines of body horror or the the, dis- the destruction, like when the the apocalypse happens and you see what happens to basically the people on the playground or the, the horror within the, the asylum where Linda Hamilton characters kept. What kind of horror are you talking about? Well, literally all of the above that you just mentioned. That's that's my point, really, is that you do have almost a slasher film sensibility to it in, in a lot of ways, particularly with the T-1000, like the way he dispenses the foster family, John's foster parents, and the way he takes out the security guard with the, with the finger through the eyeball, uh, and it comes out the back of his head. Like Cameron doesn't shy away from, from showing us that, uh, and it does have a particularly kind of, almost like a Michael Myers feel to it. If, if you think about Halloween 2 when it's set in the hospital, um, both the original Halloween 2 and the Rob Zombie remake. They're both set in these hospitals. And this film kind of has that vibe to it. When T-1000 is stalking around this this mental hospital looking for Sarah Connor, it does feel very much like a, a Halloween 2 kind of vibe to it. Um, but yeah, the, the scene with the atom bomb as well, is I, that was one of the most horrifying scenes that I remember seeing when I first saw this film just the idea of this this bomb this atom bomb um because I think we learned a little bit about atom bombs um not necessarily at school but somewhere along the educational system we were made aware of atom bombs um but James Cameron in this film he he showed you the effects of it and it's so devastating um, but the the only thing I would say is that if if an atom bomb did go off, I want to make a shelter out of whatever that fence is made out of that Sarah Connor is clutching onto, because that thing does not go down. <laughs> One thing I noticed when watching this, and and that was the the story, the basic story, which when you break it down is incredibly simple. You have a a bad guy, you have good guys. And you can say what you want about Cameron. These movies can be simple made, but 
that is obviously the key to making it work. It, it's there's a basic threat. There's an end game for the, the people to get to. They know what they have to do. They have to get to Dyson. They have to get to Cyberdyne and and destroy any sort of startup of Skynet. And you've got this Michael Myers type character, like you said, just stalking them down. So the story is fairly simple, but it's it's what he does to pad this story out with relationships within the characters. You know, you've got you've got the dynamic relationship between Linda Hamilton's character and uh, the T eight hundred. You have a relationship between John and her. The relationship between John and the Terminator, and it's all these different dynamics going on the screen at, at one moment, especially when they're uh, hanging out, when they're getting weaponed up at one point before she goes to attack Dyson, and you see her worrying about how things are going to work out and they're talking about how the, the Terminator is the best sort of father figure that John's ever kind of had. Um, she's worrying about the future, she's wondering what to do. I think he, he takes a, a simple premise but he pads it out with all these complicated emotions and character interactions throughout the movie that really just bolster it up and make it something special. Yeah, on, in many respects it's definitely a film about family and it's really a film almost like the first one it's a warning about technology and our advancement um and where it can lead us um but it's it's also like you say that scene where where she says in in an insane world it's the most logical choice i to, to have this terminator this machine be this father figure to john because he'll never He'll never abandon him, never disappoint him, never hit him. Uh, you know, it's like, it's programming. And it, in many ways, it kind of, it's a commentary on free will. It's like when you when you program something to do a particular task, then there are no dangers there. There are, there are no dangers at all because it will, it will complete its programming. The moment you give something free will, i.e. you give Skynet self-awareness, free will... That's when danger happens. The moment you you give any kind of being free will, that's when we're in trouble. That's when uh, there is the potential there for, well, for nuclear war. Um, but yeah, the the film itself, and going back to like your earlier statement with James Cameron, how he makes things simple. I think you're right. He all of his films kind of are built upon a very simple conceit. But what he does is he he builds that conceit around a strong theme. Um, so obviously with the Avatar, you've got environmentalism. It's it's a, a very strong environmental message. A lot of people believe that was hammered to the point of you know like the film's detriment. But um, whichever way you cut it, it's there. Um, and if you look at the first Terminator film, it, it is this warning uh, about machines, about technology. The second film, I think there's more of a theme there, as you say, about family and about um, about parenthood. Um, I mean, uh, Sarah Connor herself, she's she's John's mother, and she's done whatever it takes to to prepare him for this this war, this coming war. But her methods have have maybe been, well, a bit extreme because this you know this is a kid who, when we first meet him, is is robbing a load of money out of a cash machine. She, he, he wouldn't be able to do that without the training that she gave him. Um, so on the one side, her her teachings have turned him into a criminal, have been partly responsible for him being 
a, an effective criminal, but there are also the teachings that are going to help him become the uh, the leader of the human race uh, when the when the machines decide to take over. Obviously, another thing that you said is is um, she like most parents, and I know this is an extreme circumstance because he's going to be the leader of the the say, free resistance. But like most parents, they're always worried about their child's future how the world's going to be when they grow up, how they're going to be when they grow up, and that's quite apparent in the movie. It's like a, a, a parent's uh, constant anguish is going to be, how is the world going to be for our child, how is the world going to be uh, for their future? And that's a, a great point you touched on there. But another thing about Cameron as well is, yep, he always gets the big budgets, he always has the, the simple storyline and he builds on it, but he also brings the technology with him, and he is most definitely out in the forefront with technology and the special effects that he brought to light in this Terminator movie were, for me, unlike anything I had ever seen in a movie before. And watching it now, I'd say about 85-90% of it still holds up by today's standards, which is absolutely fantastic. When you think about, I've seen a movie that maybe two, three years ago in the cinema that doesn't even hold up now, and this movie's 25 years old now. Yeah, I mean... Particularly, and this goes with the first one as well. Well, no choice but to to say it about the first one because they didn't have the CGI then. But the physical effects that are used here are definitely the ones that hold up um, a lot better, like the T eight hundred robots and things like that. But even now, the the CGI still looks fairly impressive. I mean, I remember when this came out and. The, the technology kind of... It, it took off pretty quickly after this, and it, it, it has a tendency to do that. When you see um, new special effects in movies, even before the movie comes out, you see those special effects being put to use in ads and in TV shows, because obviously they can get their product out a lot quicker. So they might do a special effect, they might design a special effect for a movie... And the movie won't come out for like months and months down the line. So in between that time, an advert or a TV show will will kind of pip them to the post, so to speak. Um, I, I remember that with The Matrix specifically. He, like Before The Matrix came out, or at least at the same time The Matrix came out, all these adverts came out with the, uh, the bullet time stuff. Um, but yeah, with Terminator 2, that whole morphing effect um, which kind of started really with The Abyss which was the other James Cameron film um, it, it it just it took off in so many other avenues like The X-Files I mean me once again bringing us back to The X-Files um, <laughs> I think you'll find that happens a lot but there's a character in the X-Files, these aliens, these shape-shifting aliens. Um, I remember them doing it in Star Trek, uh, like literally just all the science fiction shows that came out would end up having a shape-shifting alien or a shape-shifting being of some kind because that was the new thing. It's, you know, it's great technology, it's a great special effect, how can we use it in our show? But X-Files really used it, they used it to great effect um, across many of their seasons. And that I get, you know, that's down to Cameron. That's down to his innovation with technology. Uh, and I, I seem to recall that even for Titanic, it might even have been The Abyss, but one of those two films, a camera was invented by him um, to to get to the depths that they needed to get to. 
Uh, like literally, that technology would not exist if Cameron didn't push for it, if he if he didn't invent it. Um, so all of cinema has a debt, really. Certainly, Hollywood cinema has a debt to this film, and particularly to Cameron. Whenever he makes a film, he's always going to push those boundaries. Oh, absolutely. Um, but one of the the best special effects I want to talk about, and that is using the term loosely, is Robert Patrick. I think. Um, He's a fantastic addition and he's a complete counterpoint to Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator. He's sleek, he's slim, he's focused, he's, he's this metallic thing and it's, he's got this very unique look about him. And you see him being extremely focused, he's holds himself rigidly. Um, when he's moving, he's, he's you know straight to that point, he's weaving in and out crowds, just knocking out his way. It's such a unique performance, it's, it's one that he's never really recaptured again I don't think through his career but this is a tailor-made performance and he didn't it's, it's quite notable as well that he didn't want to come back for uh, Genesis because he didn't want to waste the memory of his character which I do think is a fantastic character a great villain a villain that very rarely articulates he does everything through uh, his motions the way he carries himself his actions and I think he's absolutely fantastic in the movie I do have to totally agree <laughs> I was watching this last night and I, I mean, I think I've thought this before, but I, I was watching it last night and, and just thinking, you know what? Robert Patrick doesn't get enough credit for his physical performance here. Now, he doesn't have a right lot of dialogue, um, and certainly in his later career, um, I mean, again, he did go on to star in The X Files the last two seasons, um, but. <laughs> He, you know, he's, he, he has a particular accent that he can't shake. He's one of these actors that he, he's never going to be doing accents, you know what I mean? He's never going to be going deep into a character on that front. Um, but as a physical performance, it's absolutely astounding. I mean, if you watch the scenes when he is literally chasing... John Connor down. John Connor's on a bike and he's just running. He's running after him. He is not breathing at all. There is n- he, he's not panting. He's not you know not even remotely out of breath. But it, there's no sign there. No sign at all that you know that he's phased by by the fact that he's running. He literally looks like a robot. And some people might say, you know, they might they just might not even notice that. It might just like, it's easy to play a robot. You just don't emote. But I don't think that's the case, especially when you're doing the kind of physical stuff that Patrick has to do in this film. Um, and obviously when you, when you shoot a scene, you do take after take after take. So to to remain that composed and to literally not show humanity... Uh, when you're in that kind of physical exertion is quite something as far as a physical performance goes and it is really something to be impressed by I think from from Robert Patrick. Mm-hmm. Throughout the movie you see the, the, the T-1000 change into different people and different things throughout the movie and I wonder if that was always the plan for it to be constantly changing but then Robert Patrick kind of you know made the role his own and, and cameras probably thought you know let's just keep this guy all the way through it and made that up that could be a load of nonsense but it, it, interesting to find out if that was actual you know what was supposed to happen if the Terminator was supposed to constantly change you know but Robert Patrick was just 
that good or maybe it's his performance is just that good that's making me come up with these silly theories I can't verify whether or not that is true or, or false um, it's but it, theory or not it's, it's a cracking performance um, I, he just works he works in the part and it's also this juxtaposition of Arnie who is this huge hulking guy and Robert Patrick, who, as you say, is this slender, kind of sleek, small man. He's he's not the tallest of guys. Um, like you put him alongside Arnie in this film, and and you can see the difference. Um, but it but it is that that idea that actually he's the newer, sleeker model. Um, <laughs> he's he's the cheater to Arnie's leopard, I guess. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's fun watching these two guys slam each other into walls. Definitely. And in talking to Arnie, you've, you've got a complete change of performance for the first one where he was, like you said, the Michael Myers character in that, constantly chasing down his prey into this one where he is the protector, but he's still to carry um, a certain lethal nature with him as well. You know, and it's a very, as much as it's an action-orientated role, it's very comedic as well. It is, and it's just it's it's right. the 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 balance is spot on. That this is the thing. It's like a lesser director and lesser writers came on for Terminator Three, and they tried to literally repeat this formula, and they put the comedy in there, and it does not work at all. And it's it's hard to figure out why because. That same kind of comedy is is present here in Terminator Two. Where, so why does it work here and not in Terminator Three? Which I even to this day I can't even bring myself to watch again because I I just found it awful, awful film. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of it. It's it's not really doing anything that. Cameron didn't do with Terminator 2 so what is it about Cameron that makes it work um I, I mean I don't I don't know which version you watched for this I watched the uh, the director's cut yep that was the same one I watched yeah um and there's I actually I do prefer the director's cut I, I certainly prefer a lot of elements in the director's cut and one of them being a scene in which they take out um, Arnie's, the T-800's chip. They take out his chip because it resets his learning parameters. Um, so basically, there's this line of dialogue dropped in there by, by the T-800, which is that when Skynet sends out these, these Terminators on lone missions... It is able to basically switch this button in their head that allows them to become a learning machine. Now, this this button isn't usually switched on when all these these T eight hundreds are out there fighting together because obviously it, Skynet wants them to just do the job that they're designed for to go out complete the mission and that's that. But obviously, if, if you're an infiltration unit, which is what the T eight hundreds were originally built for you need to be able to adapt, you need to be able to learn and become more human so you can infiltrate. It's not just good it's not good enough to just look human. Um, and so that's what they do here. They they take out this chip from his head, they flip this switch, 
And from that point on, he becomes this learning machine. Um, so that explains uh, or gives us reason for a lot of these, these humorous moments, like this, this moment when uh, the T-800 is trying to crack a smile. It, it's funny. It works. The humour works. But you've had the setup there for, for why that works, for why he's doing this, for why he's behaving in this kind of non-machine-like way. And you don't get that in T3. Uh, it, it's They're building that kind of... that whole that sequel on the basis of the theatrical cut um, in which all this stuff was cut out. So we didn't really get so much this. There was a li- there was a line in there about him being a learning machine, but because they didn't have the other bits in there, they they took out a lot of the elements, a lot of the scenes that kind of add to that, that, that show him learning, that show the, the more humorous side of things. So because they didn't sh- because they didn't have that in T three, it just fails. It falls on its ass, um, and it just doesn't work. You've also got the fact that he's he's learning from what's supposed to be what an eleven year old that kind of age bracket, you know, and it's sort of adult mimicking what eleven year old is teaching them to say and do, which you know that's kind of just generally funny. Um, now that scene you're talking about where they're taking the chip out, was that in the theatrical cut? Because I can't remember. I'm, yeah, I'm 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 pretty sure it wasn't in there um, it wasn't right I, I wouldn't quote me on that but I, from the amount of times that I saw the theatrical cut the, there are certain scenes that stand out now when I watch the director's cut as being kind of much fresher than the rest of the film and and that bit um, in particular does it, it seems fresh I, d- I don't remember it being in the theatrical cut though I'm sure someone will correct us if we're wrong <laughs> no doubt the reason I ask is because when I was watching that scene I found it fascinating because the camera starts at one side of Arnold's head, it moves round the back, there, there seems to be no cuts, you see them putting their hands into his head and it's not just like a, a small part and it's like all the way into their head and I was, how the hell did they do that? Like really, how did I had to go on the internet and, and search for it, I, I had to know because it just looked so fantastic and the explanation is so low tech and amazing, it, it just boggles the mind. Um, I don't know if you know this, but what they actually did is Linda Hamilton had a, a twin and they had a, a prosthetic Arnold and there was no mirror. It was somebody copying their movements. So that the whole sort of like Arnold's head was all a prosthetic and he was sitting the opposite side. And, you know, I just it, it's so kind of low-tech, but it just is fantastic and it works and it's that kind of genius. You know, some people could have went and looked for the most complicated way to do it, but that is simple and amazing. It's just a, it's a fantastic shot. It was one that really stuck out watching this movie again. That's probably why it stuck out, because it may not be in the, the theatrical cut. Yeah, I mean, there's a few scenes, actually, in this film where the T- T-1000 comes face-to-face with the person that he's mimicking. Um, and often when they do those kind of scenes in films, they 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 frame it in such a way where you've got one per- one of them on one side of the screen and the other on the other side of the screen... And it's to hide the fact that actually it's two shots that have been merged together and it's one actor. Um, but the the guy in the in the, the 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 security guard in the mental institution that gets the finger through the eye, they're twins as well because um, <laughs> they, they those guys were in Good Morning Vietnam, um, both the the 
the twins, the twin brothers. Um, so they pop up here in in Terminator Two. So that was quite interesting. So yeah, but I did know I did know actually that Linda Hamilton was a twin. Um, so but but I didn't know about that effect. But it's just and it, the thing is, it's those effects, the things like that, those seamless kind of physical things. You don't actually notice them when when you're engrossed in the film. You don't notice them, um, and they kind of pass you by because they're just part of the story. So it's it's the things like the 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 metal man. So when obviously when the, when the truck's blown up and we get the liquid metal man coming out of the fire, we know that's an effect. We because there's not there's nothing really physical about it. We know it's CGI. And your your attention is drawn to the fact that it's an effect. So you start analysing, well, actually, does it hold up? Has it dated somewhat? And that's the trouble with computer-generated effects. But physical effects, when they're, when they're done right like this, you, you literally don't... You, kind of, you almost don't notice them. Um, obviously, when you're reviewing a film, when you're watching a film for the sake of reviewing it, as we have, you do go into it a bit more like that. You're looking for things like that. Uh, but yeah, it it is a cracking special effect, as are many of the other physical effects in the film. Other thing I want to talk about is is Linda Hamilton as well, who, much like Arnold Schwarzenegger, has a complete change of character from the first movie, whereas she's um, just a, a carefree uh, lady in the first one that gets drawn into this bigger picture. In this one, she knows exactly what's going to happen, and she's decided to distill her life down to training her his son into the most uh, capable leader that he can. She knows what's coming and she just wants to prepare for it. And even the physical difference for in, her, in this movie from the first movie is unbelievable. She is lean, 100% muscle. You can just see it in her, her full determination. What a change in character. She's got lots of scenes where she can show so much duality as well, like when she's pretending that she doesn't believe in the Terminators anymore to the psychiatrist. But, you know, we know she's just trying to get out of the psychiatric hospital. Later on, like we said, when she's watching the Terminator and John play together, she's thinking, you know, I may not belong for this world. He could be the one that's going to look after and protect them. And then she's got that scene herself when she goes after Dyson, which I found probably the most fascinating of the movie for that character because for a brief moment, she herself becomes the Terminator. She's after Dyson his young boy's there, his wife's there, she does not care, that's his target, and she just wants to take him out. And I thought that was such a change for the character, you know, from the first movie, and, and like I said, that, that whole scene with Dyson, I just thought, wow, they've turned her into the Terminator, the thing that she's feared and loathed and hated and dreaded coming, she has become it, to almost try and stop it. I thought it was a fantastic scene, and one that I'd actually forgot almost about. Yeah, her her transformation, just as an actress here, is quite frankly Oscar-worthy, in my mind, because <clears throat> she's a completely different woman to the the woman she was in the first film. But the that transformation is totally believable, obviously, given what she's been through and what she knows is coming. And that scene in her cell where she's doing those pull-ups and you can see that it's Hamilton doing them. And you're thinking, well, I'm thinking to myself, I can't do those many pull-ups. She is like, you know, she's not not that I'm uh, <laughs> not that I'm uh, Mr. Muscle or anything, but it's just like she's proper badass. And so often I see 
supposedly tough female characters in, in, in modern movies that, you know, they're supposed to be badasses. You think about Black Widow in, in Marvel and whatnot. Um, I think I actually think Scarlett Johansson does a very good job as Black Widow. But they're, they're trying to fit that mould an awful lot. Um, and one for one thing, they owe a debt to Linda Hamilton here in Terminator 2. But two, most of them don't quite cut it. Um, because... I, Whatever it is about them, I don't buy it. I don't. I, I kind of don't believe that they have that power. I don't believe that they could take a man down who was, you know, their size or bigger than their size. Where with Sarah Connor in this film, I believe that if she punched me, that'd be it. Lights out. Um, and that's because of her physical transformation. She's she's literally done the gym work. She's put that in there, and you can see it in her. Um, now. Someone who comes close to kind of convincing me in in recent years was Rebecca Ferguson in the in the latest Mission Impossible film, and someone who didn't convince me, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, someone who didn't convince me at all was Amelia Clark as Sarah Connor in Terminator Genesis. I did not buy in the slightest that she was any kind of physical threat. Um, she, she just, I don't know, she was a bit, she was just too waif-like. Um, she wasn't quite, for lack of a better term, manly enough. Um, but yeah, Linda Hamilton clearly put the work in and she pulls it off. She plays someone you wouldn't want to mess with. But her performance as well, not, not just, you know, not just the gym work she put in, but her actual, her acting showcase here is phenomenal. Um, there's a scene which you pointed out, the scene where Dr. Silberman, who's a... Oh, man, is he, is he a complete ass in this film? Um, he uh, He's basically testing her, and he, he shows her a video of one, her, one of her previous sessions. He wants to kind of see what her reaction to it is. And just that video where she just, she goes totally off the walls. I mean, she starts and she's in tears. She's in this dark place. She's talking about her dreams. And you can see she's this wreck of a woman. And then she proper loses it. She really loses her stuff. And, like, kind of, she goes for Silverman across the table. And uh, she's throwing all the paperwork over. And she's like, all this, it's gone. You, you're gone. And it's just like, she... But her performance there is just so hysteric and so manic and and you buy it you buy why they would lock her up in an asylum um but also that she believes it she she truly believes this she's she's witnessed these things firsthand she knows it's coming um, and it sucks you into the character in such a big way that when you get to that scene when she's take so when she's going to take down dyson you kind of almost want her to pull the trigger, despite the fact you've seen how much of a family man Dyson is. On the one hand, you don't want him to die. You want you want a way out for him. You you hope that there's some way he can be redeemed and that they can stop Skynet in, in some other way. But but on the other hand, there's always that question, isn't there? What what would happen if he could go back and kill Hitler before he became, you know, Hitler? <laughs> what if what if you could go back and 
and change the decision of the the university board or the, that de- declined him his um, his art scholarship or whatever it was. Um, you know, would that decision alter the man he became? And it's, I don't know. It's just it does raise that question. Um, but for a moment, you're like, yeah, if I was in that situation, would I pull the trigger? Could I pull the trigger? And obviously, she can't. And that's when you kind of realise just how much humanity she still has left. The fact that she she knows that pulling the trigger on this guy would end it. Um, but she can't. She can't do it. She has to find another way. And that's where her humanity survives. It remains intact. It stops the machine kind of taking over. I suppose one other actor we need to talk about is uh, Edward Furlong. Who is, uh, this is his first role. And he's out. So he matched a lot of the way because he's got all these other big characters around about him. But I think the best thing I can say about him is he's not annoying. And <laughs> I know that may seem like a slight, but I've got an explanation for it. Because in, this character in most movies would be the most annoying character of the piece. This is the kind of character that would tear things down. But in Cameron's hands and in Edward Furlong's hands, he's saying these lines that are kind of cheesy along the way. But he makes them feel as if this is just the character, this is what he would come out with. This is a young boy who's been taught to be rebellious, to fight against the system, to be almost megalomaniacal type of thing. You know, he's in full control. This is what he's always been told he's going to get. And he's got a little bit of taste of power here with this Terminator that will do whatever he, he wants it to do. And like I said, it could have been a performance that in anybody else's hands could have been extremely annoying, trite and cliched. He was perfectly cast for the role. And it's like, he... He was essentially a street kid when when Cameron found him. He was he was someone who had that kind of way about him, like a, a kid on the streets who had a lot of attitude. And Cameron just knew right away it was perfect casting. So he didn't go the traditional route of kind of you know casting whoever was the the hottest kind of young actor around at the time. He specifically sought someone out uh, for this role, and when you know, as I say, with a non-actor, but it, it, it is brilliant casting. Um, and like you say, he's, he isn't annoying, despite his squeaky voice. His, he has an almost kind of effeminate quality about him in, in much of this film, which I feel, again, is part of that perfect casting because he's, he's a mummer's boy. You know, he's, he's been raised... He, he didn't have a father figure. He was raised by Sarah Connor... Um, that you know, he spent his formative early years with her, kind of going from one place to another, training. Um, but yeah, his mother was the most impressionable influence on his life. So, he, like I say, he he has some of these kind of effeminate qualities at times, um, and I think that's. That that's a good character trait to have in this character. It, it's it makes sense given his history, um, and also gives him a lot of his his humanity. I think um, you know they they often say that the you know the male and female gender roles you tend to get the more understanding, more sympathetic kind of qualities from the woman than you do from the man. Now that isn't you know that that's a sweeping statement. Obviously, it doesn't apply to every member of the sex but generally speaking that is something that people kind of think of and so to to think of this character this guy who's going to become the leader of the resistance 
he was raised by this woman, so it makes sense that he, he is the character that he is, the, the, where we find him in this film. So, yeah, so basically a long-winded way of saying this is perfect casting. You're 100% right. It's perfect casting. What I just meant to say, I guess, was that very often in these kind of movies, the kid actor can be the most obnoxious, trite, and just generally downright grating character in the movie, whether it's like the kid in Jerry Maguire or something along those kind of lines. You get that that kid performance that just kind of snaps you out of the movie and just makes you go, oh, please shut up. But no, John Connor and Edward Furlong's performance is great. If there's one scene I can pick out that sort of encapsulates the sort of John Connor aesthetic or, or mannerisms of that, it's when um, he's with the, the Terminator in the parking lot and he, the Terminator's got a hold of him and he's asking for him to let go and these two guys come over to help him out and he realises he can tell the Terminator what to do and it's going to do it. And he starts getting all buffed up with this bravado and starts sort of back chatting to the guys and then the Terminator goes to kill them, you know, and it's just, you know, whereas in Spider-Man they said, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, but without actually saying that, they've just showed it within a scene, you know, you can have control of something like that, but things can quite easily get out of hand very quickly. And it, it could seem like a throwaway scene, and it probably does, but I just think it's a, a sort of key scene for that character. I, I, I That scene, actually, um, when I was watching it last night, it kind of made me realise, on the one hand, just how much of a douchebag <laughs> that John Connor is, because th- those guys actually come over to help, like to genuinely help. He called them over. He shouted them over. So this this poor guy is is literally he's he's about willing to get into a fight with with Schwarzenegger, someone of Schwarzenegger's size, to to protect this kid, who's basically just throws that back in his face and calls him a jock douche. And it's like actually, you know what? You're a little punk. You are a little douche. Um, but yeah, he he does instantly recognise the danger of uh, of playing these games, these kind of games. One more thing I want to touch on is that the action set pieces long before Shaky Cam became city staple in these action movies. These action set scenes are really well shot. They're really clean. You know the geography of where everybody is, what's going to happen, and they're super tense and exciting. And they're not quickly shot. They're not. You know, they're long takes. They build up the threat really really well and they escalate really well. You know, it's something that you don't really see in these um, modern blockbusters where everything's CGI and it's all thrown together and they just almost throw as much at you as they can. You know, they take a small premise that the, the T-1000 goes to the arcade to get John. The T-800 turns up, gets him. They go on a, a bike chase, you know, that escalates pretty quickly into a fireball chasing after them with a, a metal man, you know it. They're really well constructed and they escalate on constantly increasing the tension and increasing the threat and the sort of building up the villain, you know, setting out the hero. You just don't get that in these sort of like big blockbusters nowadays where they just, like I said, throw almost everything at you straight away. The thing I noticed is just how much of it is shot in wide shots. Um, like you talk about how a lot of these scenes you, you can see what's going on if you want to compare them to modern action films where the camera gets in close you've got like 200 cuts 
it's not the case here. Like Cameron literally, you know, he pulls the camera back. He lets you see the action. So a lot of the action that happens, you you can see it's physically happening within the frame. Like you go back to that chase where Arnie is is on the bike and he takes this kind of leap while still on the bike. He he leaps off this kind of ledge down into into this whatever you call it aqueduct i think you said it's called um but it's all in camera you know and it's all in one take you can see the action you can see what's going on it's it's not cut to a thousand pieces um and and to me that's that's like the the sign of someone who knows what he's doing someone who actually figures out the action beforehand how to how to get it so it actually looks right that it's really happening and then all you've got to do is point a camera at it and leave it on a wide and let us see what's happening and you just don't get that these days um unless it's like asian cinema if you look at like asian cinema they they know how to shoot action they do the same thing if you look at the raid 2 either of the raid films they you know they they shoot in wide they let people fight and they just keep it on one shot. They let them fight in a wide shot. So the action that is happening in front of the camera is actually happening. So they don't have to disguise the fact that the action isn't really good enough. It's not It's not orchestrated good enough to just show you it. They've got to do cut, 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 cut in order to make it have that impression that something frenetic is happening. Um, so yeah, brilliantly shot action sequences. Like I said at the start, I kind of have neglected Terminator 2 for a long period of time and I kind of nailed it down to a few set pieces in the movie that I knew and I kind of judged it on that. And I thought, yep, it's a great movie. I don't need to rewatch it. It doesn't really offer anything spectacular. But rewatching it again, I realised there was a lot of nuances in it and a lot of things under the base surface. Yes, it's got fantastic action, but it's also seen things as well under the surface that I didn't get maybe when I was younger and watched this and I found it a much more rewarding movie with some amazing special effects like I said that still hold up today this is going to become something that I'll generally watch maybe once a year or something like that something I can just throw on and get lost in and just love the hell out of it for me this is easily a 5 out of 5 it's a fantastic movie and your rating system Brian is probably a, a, a 10 out of 10 it's, it's perfect for me there's not a scene I would take out of it there's nothing I could add to make it any better it is just simply a well made film with every working part doing the best that it possibly can yeah absolutely I mean yeah 10 out of 10 5 out of 5 whatever whatever kind of rating system you work on it's it gets top marks it's just a beautifully crafted film in, in every respect. It's a fantastic action film. It's a fantastic horror film. It's a fantastic science fiction film. It, it It's top level, whichever genre of those three you want to put it in. Um, just, yeah, fantastic performances all around. Uh, there's, there's not really one bum note from it. It's perfectly cast. You sympathise with the human characters in these situations. You sympathise with the Terminator, like this machine. You're made to feel something beyond fear for, for this machine, this this relationship that is built up between uh, John Connor and the T-800. When he sacrifices himself at the end, that's, that's genuinely emotion. It's kind of a tearful moment. Um, but yeah, just a brilliant 
directorial outing from Cameron. Um, and again, like it, it can't be understated just how much of an influence this film and Cameron have had on the industry. Um, yeah, top draw film, one of the best films ever made as far as I'm concerned. It's definitely in my top 100, I'll put it that way. Uh, so yeah, excellent stuff. Is there anything you want to mention about the rest of the franchise or do you think it's not even worth spending the time to talk about it? Oh man, I've actually got a lot to say about the franchise. <laughs> it's, look, the, the first film for me, um, believe it or not, I actually like it even more than the, first, than the second one. Um, I, I think the second one does have better action sequences in it. It has a much bigger budget, so clearly has better special effects. And anyone who argues the case that it's a better film than the first one, I'm not going to poo-poo them. I'm going to say, yeah, you, you know, you're probably right. Um, I think there's room on either side. There's, there's a case to be made for, for both films. To me, I like simplicity the the b-movie aesthetic of the first film it's it, it's even simpler in its concept i think than the second one um it's yeah it's literally just it's a slasher film a high concept slasher film um and i love it it's what got me into this franchise and terminator 2 solidified my love for the franchise um so yeah, it was Terminator 3 that destroyed that love and took a great big dump all over it. Um, because there is literally nothing redeemable about that film. Uh, I watched it at the cinema. I came out. I just spent literally the next two hours ragging on it with my brother. Just... And then, like, about two years later, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to give this another chance just to see if it's as bad as I thought it was. So I watched it for the second time. I had all the same complaints. It was just as bad. I ain't going to watch it again. It's terrible. It pees all over the, the, the memory and the work that was done by Cameron. Uh, so, yeah, I was a bit suspect when Mick G got hired for Terminator Salvation. Um, but the sad thing is about Salvation is two-thirds of that film are actually a damn good Terminator film. The, f the first two-thirds of that film are, are very good, I feel. Very good indeed. Um, the trailer for the film completely ruined any surprises that the film had to offer. Uh, it gave away all the twists and turns in the trailer, so you knew they were coming. But the final act of the film just doesn't work. When you when you find out the, the plan of Skynet to use this Sam Worthington Terminator, uh, you're really left asking why wasn't there some kind of subroutine built into this machine so that if it did just happen to get to close enough to John Connor or Kyle Reese to not just blow them away. Um, it's really just... Yeah, the, the writing of it towards the end just completely loses its way. Um, and that's because they tr they just, they're trying to build this twist into it and it doesn't work. But beyond that, all the, the future stuff, the war scenes, when, where we see John Connor interacting with other soldiers and, and, and getting involved in these fights with, with Terminators, it was like 
the Terminator film that I wanted to watch. You know, we'd seen all these these hints at the future. We'd seen a couple of scenes of what the future war was like in both of Cameron's movies. This this was it. We were finally getting that film. We were finally getting that future. And like I say, it just balls it up in the final act. Um, but Terminator Salvation is still one I will watch again because of those two-thirds of a, of a good film. Terminator Genesis, I've only seen it once. Wasn't that impressed. Um, it's just far too convoluted. It thinks it's cleverer than it is. Um, and it's just it's now just made the timeline so convoluted that it's impossible to follow, absolutely impossible to follow. And what a T one thousand was doing showing up in the in the nineteen eighty four timeline, I have no idea. Um, but yeah, that that's it. As far as I'm concerned, there's really only two Terminator movies, and they were both directed by James Cameron. Well, like I said, I haven't seen the first one in years, absolute years. It was something I was wanting to revisit before this episode. Um, so tonight I was going to put it on, and I changed my mind and ended up watching Terminator Two again because I enjoyed it that much. As for the third and fourth one, I I've seen them in the cinema. Uh, the third one I remember absolutely nothing about whatsoever, um, and I really no interest in going back to see it. The the fourth one I don't remember too much about either. Again, I've not got any urge to revisit it. Where we really do split our opinion is going to be Terminator 5 Genesis, which when it came out in the cinema and all the reviews and all the, the scuttlebutt was that this was a horrendous movie, I actually enjoyed it. I liked the city lead actress that was in it. <laughs> our performance isn't a, a point on Linda Hamilton's, but I did actually enjoy that movie. And it's one that I will go back and revisit. I don't know if it was that my opinion was, was my expectations were set so low that it actually exceeded them. But I did enjoy the movie. I had fun with it. I was expecting the worst thing in the planet. It wasn't that. I enjoyed Arnold's performance in it. I think the most important fact about Terminator Genesis was that it was actually fun. Unlike Salvation and Rise of the Machines, it Yes, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I liked that about it. I liked the fact that it wasn't taking itself as seriously as the last two bombs. They tried something different with it. Yes, they may get a little convoluted and they mess up the timelines by going back and, and changing things. But you know what? It doesn't waste the first two movies for me. If you like Terminator 1 and 2, they're always going to be there. They're never going to change. Those movies are there that you can watch any time that you want. I was just glad to see something that was a, a little bit more fun, had some nice action sequences, looked good and felt fairly decent. And that's what I got out of Genesis and, and I was happy with that. The movie did have a few faults, but I guess the only thing that it really got wrong was casting Jai Courtney. <laughs> Jai Courtney, man. Jai Courtney in that film as Kyle Reese. Jai Courtney's got no charisma in that film at all. Um... I just, man, I like, no, just horrible, horrible casting. Look, I've only seen it once, and I will give it an, another go. I, I'll definitely give it another go. And there were enjoyable moments in it. There was quite a few enjoyable scenes in it. And I do think Amelia Clark has the look of Linda Hamilton. She does have this kind of young Linda Hamilton look about her. 
But performance-wise, look, she, she ain't a bad actress by any stretch. I know she's on Game of Thrones. Um, I've seen her in a, a few other things. I think she's a good actress. I just don't think you can follow what Linda Hamilton did with that performance. Um, you you can't just you can't just show up and 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 just do it. it, it there was something innately Linda Hamilton about it. It's like Sigourney Weaver in Alien. If somebody tried to play Ripley now in Alien, it just wouldn't work because Sigourney Weaver made it her own. It's an impossible act to follow. Uh, and that's the same with Linda Hamilton in Terminator. Uh, but yeah, the, for me, it's just the timeline issues. It's It's too convoluted. The problem is that people forget the first Terminator... It was a B movie. It was it, that's that's all it was. It was a B movie, but it was because of what Cameron did with it to elevate it. It became something more. So then you do a sequel, and Cameron essentially kind of he he, he does it again, but he, but he, he adds a few things to to broaden the horizons, so to speak. But then, what what do you do from there? If you're going to do a sequel from then on. What do you do from it? There's only two things you can do. You can either copy the formula, which is what they did with Terminator 3, and it was utter crap. It didn't work. Or you can build on the mythology. But if you build on the mythology, it just becomes too convoluted, far too convoluted, for what was essentially just a B-movie concept. You start building on it, it just... just, yeah, it falls under the weight of its own BS, quite frankly. Well, I mean, you've made some good points, but the one thing that I'm just going to pinpoint right in on is Jai Courtney. This guy is the kiss of death for just about any movie he's in. I, honestly, I don't know how he gets work, and I sometimes wonder if it's like, if it's a bet. Do you know how, like, in trading places, the two guys make a $1 bet? I think two <laughs> movie studio heads have made a $1 bet that they can turn this guy into a star just for, you know, just for a giggle because he literally just kills whatever he's in. He's the one worrying aspect of Suicide Squad. I really wish I had better articulation skills because I just want to verbally not punch this guy and just explain how bad he is, but... <laughs> just... I just do not like the guy. Like you said, he has zero charisma. I will say this about him. That's my Jay Courtney rant done. The uh, the trailers for Suicide Squad, he has impressed me in the trailers for Suicide Squad more than he has in any movie I've seen him in. There are a couple of moments in the trailers where he literally gets a laugh out loud kind of moment from me. And that's not because he's bad, but but because he's genu- genuinely trying to get that from me. So I don't know if he's just a certain type of man which is going to require a certain type of director from him. Because and, and the, the, the thing that kind of makes me think that that's the case is that I saw him in a film called The Water Diviner, which is directed by Russell Crowe. And he actually gives a not-half-bad performance in it. I I actually liked him in that film. And when I reviewed that film, I I said just how surprised I was by the fact that I liked Jai Courtney in a film. I was like, wow, blimey, he actually pulled something out. 
But when I think who he was being directed by, it's Russell Crowe. It's the man's man. It's like you can't get any manlier than Russell Crowe. He's he's the kind of guy who will lead with his fists. Uh, you know, I'm talking about everything bad about the concept of a man, not not necessarily <laughs> what you should aspire to be as a man. Um, but you know, Russell Ga- Russell Crowe is that guy, isn't he? He's that kind kind of rough around the edges, don't say the wrong thing because he might just be likely to punch you out kind of guy. And then when you look at the guy that is directing Suicide Squad, David Ayer, you look at the films he has made. He makes films like Sabotage, like End of Watch, like Training Day. You know, all these films that are filled with manly men that that lead with their fists. That You know, he, he is that kind of guy. He has those sensibilities. And I just wonder if... This is the kind of director that Jai Courtney needs. Um, Because so far, the only times I've seen him deliver anything that I find watchable was in, as I say, The Water Diviner and now the trailers for Suicide Squad. However, we could watch the film Suicide Squad and find that he's, you know, he simply just doesn't have charisma. Um, So, but yeah, it's a worrying, worrying note, but. We'll see what happens. So our top five for this episode is our top five Arnold Schwarzenegger one-liners. And of course we took uh, I'll Be Back off the table. We wanted to get a little bit more creative with our top five. So we'll just take it in turns. Um, I'll start off with my number five, which is uh, from Total Recall. It's when he's, uh, Arnold is fighting with Sharon Stone and he shoots her in the head and he turns around and says, consider that a divorce. That's my number five. That's my number five. I got it right there. Number oh. five. We're married. Yeah. She, that's what she said. She says, we're married. And he goes, consider it a divorce. Uh, yeah, literally, that was my number five choice. Consider it a divorce. Oh, great minds. Um, well, hopefully we won't keep that uh, going. I'll start off with number four. And I've got a funny feeling you may have this one as well. And it's from one of my favourite Arnold Schwarzenegger movies, The Running Man. And it's uh, when he's running down the street and uh, I can't remember the character's name but he's covered in light bulbs and he's just trying to get his attention and he's like Hey lighted, hey Christmas tree <laughs> I, I don't I do have a quote from uh, Running Man in my list but it ain't number four uh, my, number four cho- my number four choice is actually from True Lies and it's when um, Art Malik's character is hanging from the missile and just before he fires him he goes you're fired and just sends the missile and it's just like it's that proper kind of dug right out of the 80s full-on cheesy one-liner just before you before you kill someone that that Annie is so famous for doing um it's so obvious as well All, all of his best lines I feel are just really obvious but because of his delivery they just work so yeah you're fired from true lies <laughs> oh man 
Yeah, my number three is from Commando, and it's when he just before he ki- well he's he's actually killed Bennett. Um, he's thrown this uh, thing through him, and it basically comes through a steam pipe, and all this steam comes out. And you know, what is the obvious line you're going to come out with in that situation? You're obviously going to say. Let off some steam, Bennett. <laughs> and that's exactly what he says. And it's all in the delivery, as only Arnie can give it. <laughs> that is absolutely 80s classic, Arnold. Two in my list is a little bit more of a serious one. There's no comedic tone to this. It's just, uh, it's from Predator. And I just like the scene where he just turns around and it's like, if it bleeds, we can kill it. I, I was actually, I was very, very close to putting that one on my list. Um, but the one that I always quote from Predator, bizarrely, is uh, stick around, and that's what I've got at number two. Um, as you can tell from my list, I kind of like the ones where Arnie kills someone rather inappropriately and just kind of drops in a line, a really obvious line as to how he killed them. So, yeah, he throws a knife at someone, nails them to a wall, and just goes, stick around. My number one is a little bit long-winded. It's not so much a one-liner as a couple of sentences. And I've uh, my number one, as I say, is from Running Man, and I, I think if it wasn't for Arnie's delivery, it wouldn't be as hilarious as it is. But I, I hear it and I just crack up. I just I I literally just pee myself laughing, and it's it's where he's um it's where he kills the dude and he goes, "Here is your hero now, Plane Zero." <laughs> And I really apologise for my Arnie impersonation there because it sounds nothing like him. But it's just the ferocity with which he says that line. Um, and it's, it, his delivery just cracks me up on it. But, yeah, that's that's my number one. Um, yeah, I mean, I had so many from The Running Man. It's one of my favourite Arnold movies. <laughs> Another one he has is um, he's fighting the guy Buzzsaw and they're fighting the chainsaw and he, he splits him up the middle and uh, he's running away with the female character and she goes, what happened to Buzzsaw? And he just oh, goes, he had, he had to split. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was actually on my list. That was that was in my top seven. It, it was very close to getting him in my top five. Um, but yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, I put a call on Instagram earlier on just to see everybody else's favourite Arnold one-liner and I've got a couple here. Stick around from Predator, you had that one. Strangely enough, great movies are loving. Put Batman Chill. I think anybody would have picked anything from Batman and Robin, but there you go. Uh, Film had let off some steam, Bennett. You had that as well. Uh, Blazing Minds had I'm the famous comedian Arnold Brownschweiger. That's from Last Action Hero. Marcus Just put in uh, Put That Cookie Down from uh, Jingle All The Way, I think it is. Jingle All The Way, yeah, yeah. Jingle All The Way. Uh, Put that cookie down. <laughs> uh, yeah, another one here fantastic. is uh, another famous <clears throat> one as well. It's not a tumor. It's not a tumor at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
quite a few good ones from Commando actually. There's there's a a good one for Commando where um, where is it? I've got it here. He's he's talking to a guy named Sully, and he goes, "You're a funny guy, Sully. That's why I'm going to kill you last." And then uh, later on, um, he's got hold of Sully over a cliff, and Sully's like, "Wait, wait! You said you were going to kill me last." I I I I think he says I think Annie says I was I said I was going to kill you last and Sully's like yeah yeah you were right that's it you did say that and then uh, Annie just goes I lied and then just drops him <laughs> so that was it that was a pretty funny one okay so from, I think it's clear to see that Arnold's uh, career was pretty much made up of one-liners <laughs> definitely yeah I think he invented the one-liner. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a, a bad comic strip or something like that, but it's a fair play to the guy. He, he seems to get away with it. Um, so we'll move on to the watch list. And um, to go with the last episode, we were talking about Star Trek, and I went back and visited Star Trek Into Darkness. I'm just wondering if you did the same thing. I didn't actually revisit Star Trek Into Darkness. I, I'm still meaning to, uh, but I did see the new one, Star Trek Beyond. What did you think of Star Trek Into Darkness? Well, I, like we said the last time, we thought it could have been better on a rewatch, and I thought it was far better. You know, and I liked it the first time round, but I really enjoyed it the second time round. I think it was getting away from a lot of the bad press and the bad reviews and a lot of people naysaying the movie. I think getting some distance on it just made it what it was, an enjoyable movie. And I think because I'm not really too much of a Trekkie, I didn't really know... I can't really remember much about Wrath of Khan. Most of those plot points didn't really bother me, and I got a lot more just enjoyment out of the movie. And in fact, I would rate Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek very close together on the rate scale, if not exactly the same. I enjoyed both these movies very much. I thought Cumberbatch was terrific eh, this time around, and it was good to see all the characters back. And I just I thought with a stronger villain, it just made for a better movie. And I think now, after seeing the third one, the second one really works as a, as a sort of second part of a three-act structure. It's very bleak, it's very dark, and it's sandwiched in between these two really colourful movies. And it's a sort of downtrodden part to the series, and I like that about it. I like the fact that they took such a, a chance and they turned it into a dark, gritty second movie. Led me up to Star Trek Beyond, which I was really excited about seeing after seeing these two movies. Um, I know you saw that today as well, so we'll just do a quick review on it as well. Um, in the, the show notes below, there'll be time tracks, so if you haven't seen Star Trek and you're worried about spoilers, there'll be a, a time tracker when we finish uh, talking about it, if you want to skip ahead on the next part. So, Brian, what did you think of Star Trek Beyond? I really liked it. Um, I think it's going to require another viewing, as tends to be the case, but I think it has certainly of the new of of the newer films the these last three films it has the strongest villain in it i would say um i think idris elba is very good very good indeed as as the main villain um i i like his motivations they're, they're very simplistic but i think he has better motivations than say the likes of nero um in in many ways he's a similar villain to nero it's it's kind of a simple revenge plot um but his his motivations are just fleshed out they're they're explained they're you know they're, they're given reason so to speak um 
there's a there's a section in the film where they're on this planet uh, that this Idris Elba's character has kind of brought them down onto, and there are parts of that that do seem to lag a bit. Um, but what I will say is, on the whole, this one felt a lot more like an older Star Trek movie. It felt to me like it was written much more by a Star Trek fan um, than the than the previous two movies. There's a lot of in jokes in there, a lot of Star Trek kind of like fan fan you know jokes for the fans, um, but also a lot of a lot of the the kind of social commentary that you would expect from from Star Trek about um, idealism and you know what it is to to be on a starship, to be part of a crew, to you know, to be part of something greater than yourself. Uh, yeah, it 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 was a good story, well told, a uh, much better villain, um, some great action scenes, which I was expecting to be honest from the likes of Justin Lin, who really proved himself with the Fast and the Furious franchise, uh, particularly in the action stakes. Uh, what I will say though is that I I do feel like. His use of the spinning camera is something akin to J.J. Abrams and the lens flare. Quite disorientating at times, uh, possibly used too often, but, you know, it is what it is. It's his his stamp on the film, I guess. He's, you know, he. I first noticed this with Justin Lin in the last Fast and Furious film, where... In the fight scenes, he would have a camera that would spin with someone as he fell down, and he's kind of littered that into into his films a fair bit. Uh, so yeah, I think I, it feels a little bit too much like a director trying to put a stamp on the film, uh, trying to to claim it as their own, I guess. But you know, whatever, it's fine. Um, it, it's not too off putting, but overall, good, solid Star Trek film, solid action sci fi film. And at this point, I'd give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, uh, very similar to yourself. I really enjoyed it. I, I loved the, the colourful nature of it. Uh, a couple of things that I thought was was very well done was when they, they end up on the planet and the, the major crew or the main players of the crew get separated. And I thought they get separated really well because you've got like Chekhov with Kirk and that's somebody you wouldn't really have seen too much about. You've got Spock and Bones together and we, you know their kind of antagonistic relationships. so it's good to see them together. Then you've got Uhuru and uh, Sulu who's taken on the city captain's mantle. And at first I thought, oh, oh no, we've, we've separated the best part of the movie. But it, it created a stronger relationship between these small uh, groups of people and a better interplay than I thought. One thing that I will say about the the bad guy, the villain, this is definitely the best villain out of the three movies that they've had so far. And that attack on the Enterprise at the start, now you've seen it in the trailers and you know that it's going to happen, but I did not think it was going to be as sustained and as long as what it was, and it just kept going and going and going. It was fantastic. And you could really see the pain on Kirk almost when they're, they're sort of ripping his pride and joy to absolute bits. And the... the, the the alien spacecraft was unique as well. The fact that it wasn't one just giant, big, monstrous spaceship, because let's face it, when you had Nero's spaceship, it was huge. Were they, they going to make it bigger? doesn't make things better. No. We've seen that with Star Wars. You know, a bigger Death Star doesn't make it better. <laughs> but having these smaller ships that sort of work together as a swarm was 
fantastic and the shields had no effect on it because they were such uh, smaller ships that had, could interfere with them and things like that. It was, it was a great design. And even when they land on the planet and they sort of all sort of interlocked and built up, it was just it's such a small thing, but it's something I hadn't seen before and I was just like, that's really unique and pretty cool. Like you said, Idris Elba was uh, really good as the main villain and, and like yourself, I think it's going to need a second watch. I'm actually going back on Sunday again to see it and I think I think your first watch, you're you're waiting for the plot to evolve and move forward. You're waiting for the next plot point to get to the story. But once you know the stories, when you can't start to sort of catch all the smaller parts in the movie, and uh, I think that'll be it'll be an interesting second watch. But probably I'm, I'm a similar score than you, four out of five, eight out of ten. Really enjoyed it. I think um, a movie that people were saying wasn't going to be that good yet again this summer has turned out to be pretty, uh, pretty, pretty good in my opinion. I can't wait to see it again. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, have you got anything else on your watch list? Um, <coughs> I watched The Legend of Tarzan uh, just the other day. Um, I, I really wasn't expecting a lot mm-hmm. from that at all. I thought it was going to be quite poor, to be honest. Um, past couple of weeks, I've kind of had the option to go and see it, and literally just because how because <laughs> of how I felt about going to see it, I, I just not bothered. Um, but the other day, I just literally wanted to get out of the house, and that was about the best option that was on. So I went, I watched it, and I was f- fairly surprised by it. I I actually quite liked it. I'd say it's a solid seven out of ten. Um, I think they 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 get under the skin of the character. I think they get it's it's good to see them tackle the story from the point of view of this character having been out of the jungle for some time and then having to go back after being within civilised society, in, you know, in, in inverted commas. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that aspect. Some of the special effects are a bit ropey on it, like really ropey, and I kind of feel like that's a result of maybe director David Yates having to exit the film a little earlier than he would have liked because of uh, some... Uh, commitments to obviously to fantastic beasts and where to find them uh the the schedule kind of overrun on this so he did have to depart a bit earlier than expected so he wasn't really there to supervise a lot of the the effects work i think um but you know it's it's not a big deal the the story is quite well told i i do think samuel l jackson is a bit out of place here i like him i like the character he plays i just don't think that this character belongs in this film, it's like he's been pulled out of a different film and kind of stuck in this one. Uh, it's, it's it's almost like a serious film about colonialism that suddenly has this bizarre kind of comic relief character of Samuel L. Jackson. Um, but you know, hey ho, whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It was a good ride for two hours. Um, it's. It's not something I would urge you to go and watch, you know, go, go and rush out and watch. But, I, I, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, and I I chose it over Ghostbusters and I'm quite glad. I've still not seen Ghostbusters. I, I just can't quite bring myself to get there and go and see it. Um, I, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing Tarzan. The last trailer really won me over up till then. I had zero interest, but the last trailer made it look quite quite exciting with a fairly decent villain, so it's something I'm hopefully going to check out. Uh, talking about Ghostbusters, that's something that I recently went to see. Um, 
I'm a, a huge fan of the, the first and second one. And when the, this got announced, I was very worried because I'm not the biggest Melissa McCarthy fan. I found after Bridesmaids, like a, a stick got very old very quickly. And um, the director as well, I'm not a, a huge fan of most of his movies. So I was a little bit worried with Ghostbusters. And very quickly when I sat down to watch it, I was won over. Um by this movie, they play it a lot more serious than what the trailers let me believe. The, the trailers almost portrayed this as going to be like a slapstick comedy, which it most definitely is not. Um, the opening scene, I thought, was quite you know, well shot as a, as, as a scary movie, almost. It's, it's paced that way. Um, and then once you meet the characters, the characters are all fully fleshed, quite intelligent women who, there is some... Uh, physical comedy in the movie, very, very little. It's most um, verbally based comedy, you know, the jokes are in the way they say things or the way their expressions towards things. Um, their, their reasons for doing the job that they're doing are very well fleshed out. They seem plausible. The design of the ghosts was exceptional. I thought they looked amazing. The neon bright colours were, were something I hadn't really seen before in this amount on a screen and I thought they were, they were great. There was two performances in the movie that I hadn't seen before, with Leslie Jones, who plays Patty, and Kate McKinnon, who I can't remember her character name, but she was absolutely fantastic, and she's like the, the one that makes the proton packs and all the, the things in that, and this woman was amazing. I don't know what she'd been before, or if she's been in anything before, but you'll know when you see the movie, she was great. It does do throwbacks to Ghostbusters 1 and 2, but it, they're not in your face type of things, there's there's a scene where they've got the, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, but it's not the, the big bad guy in the movie they've got like a, it's a almost like a 1930s so it's like float, parade uh, ghosts that come back to life and one of the balloons is the big Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, so, which is a nice touch but it's not recreating the original movie and they do that all the way through it, they have nice little nods, but they're not remaking that movie, they're creating their own story for this generation, and I was really won over by the movie in the end, and I went in there going like, I'm not going to like it, I will not like it, this is not for me, came out going, you know what, I did enjoy it, it's not the best movie on the planet, I will watch this again, um, I'm hoping there'll be a sequel, because I would quite happily go back and see that again, I just enjoyed the movie, I found it a lot of fun, a little bit long, I thought Chris Hemsworth was hilarious throughout the movie, he's probably got the biggest comedic role in it, like the straight out comedic role, um, it's just a great film. I, I suggest that you do check out if you get the chance to, especially on the big screen. I I, I probably will then. Um, I have actually heard a few people say that you know it's n- it's not like everyone's saying it's not the bad film that everyone's saying, but yeah, I just thought the trailers were awful. I mean, Chris Hemsworth, uh, I think he's got amazing comedic timing. Um, if you look at the Avengers films, he gets all the funny moments in them. Um, the Thor standalone films may not be the best standalone films as far as the Marvel movies go, but him as Thor, he, he's perfect as Thor, and he's like I say, some of the some of the uh, some of the funniest bits in in any of the Marvel movies come from Thor, come from Chris Hemsworth. So. It doesn't surprise me to to hear really that he he would be one of the funniest parts of the film, uh, but yeah, you know, I'll give it a watch. Definitely, I'll 
I'll pluck up the uh, the gumption to go and watch it at some point this week. The couple of couple of older films that I I've watched recently, some stuff I've been catching up on. Hannibal Rising I watched for the first time uh, just this last week, and I can tell you that I will never be watching it again. It's absolutely terrible. Um, Maggie is another film, an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. While we while we're on Terminator Two, uh, film that I watched. It's like a zombie film, but it's it's not like a traditional kind of zombie film. It's almost more like a family drama. If you imagine like a family drama film in which a family is dealing with a, a child that has cancer, it almost plays like that. It almost plays like a film in which these parents are dealing with this child who has cancer, only it's not cancer, it's zombie infection. Um... And and that's how it kind of plays out. So yeah, it's different. It's it's a bit depressing. It's a bit dark, but I I kind of liked it for what for what it was. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd give it a six out of ten. I'd recommend it. Probably not. It's probably not going to be something you watch again and again. But it's definitely worth one watch. Um, and yeah, last of all for me, I guess. In fact, last last of all for me, I, I was I was going to do one film, but I'll, I'll just mention another. I, I I got around to watching the Babadook, um, which really impressed me. Absolutely fantastic film. I'm not the mm-hmm. not the biggest horror yeah. guy, but as far as horror films go, really really impressed me. And the central performance in the film by the woman I can't remember her name, but the uh, the the lady who plays the the mother in that film. Wow. What what a performance! Um, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, it's it's one of the best horror movies in in recent years. Truly really fantastic. Um, I've got two things that I want to quickly touch base on. Uh, one of them is Now You See Me Two, which I finally got around to see. <laughs> As I said in the last episode, I'm a huge fan of the first one. I went to see the second one with low expectations, and I did kind of enjoy it, but it's nowhere near as good as the first one. Like you said in the last episode, there's. They seem to explain what they want to explain. They don't bother explaining what they, they don't want to explain. It's kind of strange that way. It, it almost feels like they're trying to be too clever for their own good. And they've made a mess of things. The one thing that really annoyed me about the movie was the Morgan Freeman storyline. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anybody else, but they, they change him around in this movie that really makes everything that happened in the first movie completely ludicrous and pointless, as in why did why was that allowed to happen type yeah. of thing. But I've got to say, one thing that I did like in the movie, um, and this is going to sound strange straight away, is Woody Harrelson's dual roles. Now, he plays his twin brother in the movie, and when his twin brother first appears on screen, I was like, what is this? What is, what is this? Is this a comedic role supposed to be? What is he doing here? It's so outlandish a performance. But it grew on me pretty quickly. It actually turned out to be one of my favourite characters in the movie, and I think it's because it's so off-kilter and so from left field and strange and unlike his other role that I was actually looking forward to that character being on screen. But yeah, the, the movie, I don't know if I'll... I'll probably watch it once more just to, to galvanise my thoughts on it. I still love the first one. I don't know if the second one's going to get quite as much love from me as it, it as the first one. One other thing I want to talk about is there's been a recent Netflix se- uh, series that's just appeared called Stranger Things. Oh, I really want to see this. It's an eight-part series. Yeah, I, re- I really want to see it. The trailers oh, for it just this. look so good. I just put it on going, I don't know what it is, I'll start watching it. Five minutes in, I was texting everybody I know, you need to sit and watch this. It's an amazing show. I'm not going to 
talk too much about it, just if you can get your hands on it, if you can check it out, it's eight episodes and it is tremendous, absolutely tremendous, the whole look, the acting, it's like an Amblin movie mixed with a Stephen King story is the best way to describe it, Goonies mixed with Stephen King, it's just, it's truly fantastic, um, if you get a chance to check it out, check it out, it's just amazing, I, I burned through it in a couple of days, I just couldn't stop watching it. Yeah, I, I definitely want to check that out because I, I saw the trailers for it and was just blown away by the trailers. Uh, the cinematography on it was just, like you say, it has a very ambling, early Steven Spielberg quality to it. Um, kind of like Su- Super 8 as well. As it, it remind, reminded me a bit of Super 8, the way that was shot. Um, but another, another TV series that I really desperately want to see as well that I've seen trailers for recently is the the adaptation of Westworld they've done uh, Westworld as a TV series and it looks beautiful it looks amazing Anthony Hopkins is in it tons of other really big name actors in it Um, but yeah definitely one to check out I think judging from the trailers yeah that's probably one I'll get to at some point as well Um, so as for next episode Brian it's it's your choice this week so you want to let us know what you've chosen yeah, what one of my favourites. Um, I think we'll go with V for Vendetta next time. Excellent. And if pe- people if people want to just give their top fives for the next episode, we're going to be doing top five graphic novel adaptations. So both me and Graham will give our top five each, the way we did today with our top five uh, Arnie one-liners. But if you want to add your two pennies worth, then please do comment on our Twitter accounts. So you can find either one of us on Twitter. Um, and just let us know what your favourite graphic novels are. Uh, you don't have to give us your top five, but if you want to, by all means, please do. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, that gives me a reason to watch a lot of uh, comic book movies. Um, that's not like I need a reason, but I'm going to use it as one anyway. Um, that's fantastic. Now, if... Anybody that's listening here, we'd like to thank you for coming back and listening to our second episode. Hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed talking about it. And a little plea from us, if you could please go into the iTunes store and rate, like it, even if you can't review it, just hit five stars. It will allow us to get noticed by other people and just give us a little ego boost and make us even more willing to come back and spend more of our time talking about movies. Um, as Brian said, you can hit us up on Twitter or you can go to our channels. My channel is Man vs. Film. You can find Brian at Brian Lomax Movie Talk. And all the links will be in the show notes below or where to find them. So thanks for listening to Brits on Flick, episode 2, Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And uh, we'll hope to hear, see you back for part 3, V for Vendetta. And we'll see you very soon. Thanks for listening. You just can't go around killing people. Why? You might have to edit that down. I just bloody rambled on and on then. <laughs> well, that was, that was great. It covered just about every base and was far better than any synopsis I could uh, come out with. I think uh, I was leaning towards two robots get sent back in time and that was about it. My brain, I'm having, I'm having brain farts tonight. It's just... Yeah, I'm going to lack of sleep here and uh, a few drinks in as well. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. Uh, you might want to edit some of that out. I just started to rant, but...